Hi, everyone. On today's episode of the podcast, I had a conversation with Dr. Mallory Mentel, a chemistry professor at CSU. We talked about her interest in chemistry, how she teaches a complicated subject to a large class of students, chemistry in our everyday lives, and her graduate school research on microfluidic devices. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, everyone. I'm sitting here with um, Dr. Mallory Mentel, who is a professor in the chemistry department at CSU. Um, thanks for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Um, so before we get into some of the topics we wanted to discuss today, I wanted to start off like asking you just about your interest in chemistry and like when that sort of began. So I, uh, when I I knew I was into the sciences and starting in undergrad, I went in as pre-med, um, which I think lots of people do who have an interest in, chem in uh, science in general, because that's just a typical field, but very quickly um, enjoyed my chemistry courses and switched from a bio major to chemistry major um, right away. I also, after volunteering in the emergency room, I was at Gonzaga University in Spokane had a pretty active ER, um, I quickly learned that I might not be cut out for that. Um, I was fainting from seeing people brought in and stuff. It was, it was terrible. Um, so I also, because I went to such a small uh, undergraduate school, they let undergrads be TAs in the labs. Um, and I, I didn't know that I wanted to teach. Um, I was actually a pretty, pretty shy kid. So I started being a TA and realized that I really loved it, um, thought I was pretty good at it. And so very quickly thought that um, a chemistry PhD was the route I wanted to take so that I could teach at the university level. That's really interesting. So you basically, like, once you figured out you wanted to teach, that was what sort of motivated you to get a further education in chemistry? Yes, um, in part because when it comes to teaching, at least, um, I think in most fields, but especially in the sciences, without a doctorate degree, you, you can't teach at the university level. Then I should also mention, um, I have a, an aunt and a cousin who were uh, chemistry professors, uh, you know, both females. So I can't say that that wasn't probably subconsciously, at least um, in my head. You know, I knew other, other women in my family that, that did this as a living. Yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting, like, um, I guess when I was like in high school, I always thought that teaching like high school students would be a really cool thing. But now that I'm in like um, undergrad, it sort of seems like teaching undergrads would be a really cool thing as well. So it's kind of interesting how like um, just like going from different settings kind of changes at least my perspective on it. So yeah, and I think for me, teaching anything below college um, level scared me. Just the thought of like high school kids or even lower. Um, just seemed very scary to me. <laughs> so I thought at least at the college level, they're more um, like adults. Um, however, now I feel like I, I would enjoy high school level too. I just, you know, I was young and, and thought that this was the way to go. Yeah. And then um, as far as like uh, research in terms of like the research you did in graduate school, we don't have to get into the details of that um, just yet. But was that something that like you just uh, like happened to be interested in um, when like going for your PhD? Uh, do you mean the type of research I did? Or just like or research, research in, in general? Yeah, research in general. Well, so I'll be honest, um, in, in order to get a PhD in chemistry or any of the sciences, 
you have to do research. You have to publish papers. Um, so it, there wasn't really a choice. Now, even to this day, I don't love being in the lab. Um, however, I'm, I am good at it. And so I did a lot of research as an undergrad. I did summer uh, research internships at different universities and, and, it, and it went well and built up my resume. So I knew that was something I was gonna do. Um, I also, as, as I kept going with research, um, while it went well and I did enjoy it somewhat, I knew that I, I definitely wanted to be in academia and teaching and, and not be on the research side quite as much. Yeah, that's really cool. I like, yeah, I always like wonder like if people are driven by research when they go for their PhD and like it seems to differ by field too, like, um, and just person in general, like what people are interested in, so. Um, I'd say a lot of grad students in, um, in, in, a, in a grad school setting, most of them are, they live and breathe their research. Um, they just absolutely love it. And those are the type of people that really should be doing research um, I was okay with it, but I was not obsessed with my research the way other people were, which sometimes made me feel like, am I, am I inadequate? Should I not be in this field? Um, but in the end, you know, I, I was still doing well. Um, and, and I'm glad that, that that experience doing research was definitely important. There's, there's no way to, to be at the level of a PhD in the sciences without going through that, those processes. Yeah. That's really, that's really cool. I'm sure that's like inspiring to some people too, in case like they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do research my whole life. Like you can sort of use it too as like a vehicle to get somewhere else. So Absolutely. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about was um, your like approach to teaching um, a large chemistry class at like a large university, um, just because it seems like a very intimidating thing. Like in my experience as like a student, like I feel like chemistry is one of those topics a lot of people go into like nervous about just because it does have a reputation of being like somewhat a difficult like subject. So I just wanted to hear like sort of what your approach is to getting students on board to like learning with you. Yeah, this is this is huge. And this is something I like had to learn as I did it. So I, I mentioned I went to a, a small undergraduate school. Um, my biggest class was probably 30 students. And then my first job at a grad school was also at a small school, Regis University in Denver, which again, small classes. So when I came to CSU, where we have, um, I think almost all my lectures are about 250 students each. Um, I, I will admit my first week teaching at CSU, I thought I was going to throw up every single day before class. It was, it was very nerve wracking. Um, now I, I have no problem. It's, it's, it's nothing. Um, and, it, and I really enjoy it. I enjoy it more than I thought. And, but it is different. So not only you know it's, it was intimidating for me at first and what i found when you have such a huge class um, not only are you trying to reach so many different people but the the levels like some people they've already taken ap chemistry coming into my class some have never taken chemistry in their lives some took chemistry but didn't do well so now they have it in their heads that they're bad at chemistry um so kind of like you mentioned one of uh, what I found, especially in a bigger school, but even a small school, my number one job in the beginning, I feel, is boosting confidence. Because I found when people just have it in their head, I'm bad at this, um, this is going to be terrible, it's harder for them to succeed because they, and they're also then convinced that they don't like it. 
So I think two things, boosting confidence and also just making them interested. It's like you said, chemistry has a reputation for being difficult. That is, that is not a lie. That is true. It is probably, I think, the most difficult subject to study um, that's out there. So there's also a balance of telling everybody, you can do this, you're going to be fine, but also keeping a realist, realistic expectation, like it's not going to be a walk in the park. You're probably going to work harder than you've worked before, you know, depending on your background. Um, so have a healthy fear that, you know, you, you can't slack off, you can't procrastinate, but know that like you can do this. There's never been a, a case of a single student, and I've now taught thousands, where the in, uh, intelligence was an issue. That's never an issue. It's just like, can you put the work in? Um, so boosting confidence is a big thing. What I what I tell students all the time is, you know, especially ones that have maybe only taken one chemistry class and it didn't go well or have never taken chemistry. If you went surfing for the first time and your first day out in the water, you weren't, you know, just shredding it up, you know, out on, on the water, would you say, oh, I'm really bad at surfing? Or would you look at it as, well, I still have a lot of practice to do, right? And that's chemistry. You can't, even for someone like me, you can't just step in the, your first day of chemistry and expect everything to just soak into your head. It takes practice. Um, so like you said, chemis uh, chemistry is intimidating and kind of getting people to be more calm about that it is a big thing. And then just getting students interested. So this, um, what, I, what I try to do is, you know, show everyday examples of, of chemistry in people's life, which there's just so many um, try to keep it interesting, you know, like the, we can touch on this later, but the Mars rover just landed. That's really exciting. So get people excited about that. This is so much chemistry involved in that. Um, I also, since I have so many different majors in my classes, this has been kind of fun for me. I can look through what all the majors are and then try to go look for how would this relate to a horticulture major? So I got a lot of those. How would this relate to nutrition science? Um, so I, because of the CSU students have learned more in a bunch of fields because I want to try to relate to them and what they're studying so that they're more interested. So that's yeah. really um, fun. Yeah, I think that's like a really good point that you're bringing up there too. Like, um, because chemistry is inevitably like involved in pretty much everything in like our lives. And like, that's something that I definitely did not think about ever before going into your class. Like the last time I took a chemistry class was my sophomore year in high school. So like it was something that I had a little bit of background information about, but then like once you're really in the course, like at a college level, you start to realize like, okay, yeah, this is involved in everything. Um, and before we talk more about um, like chemistry in our everyday lives, I wanted to touch back on something you mentioned earlier about how like your, your sort of metaphor with surfing and how that's something like you would just think you need more practice with. I think that's like a really big mindset that people should have, especially in the sciences, because like I when I was in high school, like I wasn't very good at math and I always thought, oh, I'm just not like oriented towards math. I don't have a math brain, but sort of like as I've learned more and gone into college, I've realized like some people might have a, a little bit of an orientation towards math or like they enjoy it. They've had really good experiences with it and they have a talent for it but anyone can learn math like with practice and if they put the work in. So I think that's, yeah, a really good message to put out there. You know, the math thing is huge. And I want to comment on that because um, even myself, 
I am someone that to this day, um, I cannot do math in my head, even like simple addition. I think in part because now I have like a complex about it because when I was you know younger, I was not very good at it. So even through high school, um, even though I was a very good student, I just had it in my head, I'm not good at math. And I hear people say that all the time. Um, and then as I got into college and was taking more advanced, you know, calculus, calculus two, I realized I'm actually really good at math. I'm still bad at it in my head, but give me a piece of paper and I can, you know, derive equations, do all that. So I like to tell people that because being able to just do a bunch of calculations in your head doesn't say, or not being able to do that doesn't mean you're bad at it. It's just a different way of processing information. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And also like um, one of the reasons, at least I like sort of subscribe to the idea that like chemistry is like a notoriously difficult subject was when I was in high school, they taught us um, stoichiometry and like dimensional analysis. And they taught it in a way that was like, at, I guess at my age, I just wasn't like ready to like put in the work and like try and figure that out. So I remember like one of the first days of, um, of your class, you mentioned like, we're going to be doing dimensional analysis. And I like sort of had that like internal, like, ugh, like I don't want to do dimensional analysis. But I realized like the way that you would write it out on the board um, and just like constantly sort of like showing examples and walking it through like step-by-step step really like allowed me to become less like, I don't want to say I was afraid of it, but less, um, you know, less, less intimidated by it. Um, so yeah, that was like a really helpful thing for me. And I think a lot of people too, because it kind of gets a bad rap depending on what like your prior experiences are with it. Absolutely. Well, I'm happy to hear that. And yeah, I think just recognizing that it's a, a process rather than memorizing steps, the memorization is, is what makes it almost seem impossible and intimidating to do. So that's good. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, so now, uh, if, if we can, I want to talk about chemistry in our everyday lives. So I don't know if you have any specific examples that you want to talk about that you think are really interesting. I know you brought up the Mars Rover. Yeah. And so, well, since I brought that up, that's just real quick. Um, you know, the Mars Rover just landed on, just landed. And what a lot of the Mars Rover is, is a bunch of analytical instruments. So these are all the same instruments that we use in our in our labs, ones I've used a bunch of times, and they're just constantly um, taking soil measurements and measurements of, well, I guess they don't have an atmosphere, but measurements of whatever's around and then sending that um, back to Earth. Um, I thought of, so what I think is kind of cool about chemistry is like you mentioned, it, it has to do with absolutely everything. So even something that's like a really mundane um, topic, like I'm going to mention chemistry in food, right? I think you, you'd you be surprised, all of us are, at how much chemistry has to do with, with the food. So in a couple of different ways. Um, number one, actually food science uh, or the food industry probably employs um, some of the largest number of chemists in the country, which was shocking when I learned that. Okay, so why, why is that? Um, you think about just preservatives, how even like whether this is good or bad, a lot of the like, you know, prepackaged processed foods, there's chemists that they, their job is to, how do you make this food smell like this? It's like a lot of fake stuff, um, but this exists, right? How do you make it have this taste, right? Of, of a candy flavor, right? That's not even a real fruit. 
Um, but something kind of more interesting that's not about fake food is um, bananas and ripening or, or fruit and ripening, right? So bananas, melons, tomatoes, pears, quite a few fruits. The reason that they uh, ripen is they have this horm hormone called ethylene. So right before they're about to ripen, they start producing this. It's a gas actually. And this is what causes, let's just stick with bananas, them to start, you know, ripening. They go from green to, to yellow and get softer, right? Because this is a gas, if you've ever noticed, if you put, if you have like a bowl of fruit and you have other fruit next to bananas, they'll also start ripening faster because this gas is, um, you know, touching them and, and being exposed to them. So right there, maybe it's not the most exciting thing, but something that happens every day. Um, so then, I don't know how many people know this, but obviously we get our fruit. How are we getting all these pears and, and bananas and things in Colorado in the middle of winter? They're being shipped from either across the country or Mexico, you know, other countries. How are we able to do that? Well, without chemistry, we wouldn't be able to. So what, what's done is that they'll pick tomatoes, bananas, whatever, before they're ripe. So they're shipping green bananas, for example. As soon as they get to the distribution center where they, before they get to the grocery store, they actually spray them with ethylene gas to make them ripen. So, so we can force them to ripen. And you know, ethylene is naturally produced by the plant. So it's not like it's being sprayed with something harmful. Um, so anyway, most, almost all the fruits that you, you know, buy in the grocery store, especially if they're ones that do not grow locally, have probably been, you know, ripened in, in this manner. So it's yeah. just like one kind of interesting thing that we deal with every day and we probably don't know about it. I didn't even know about this till couple of years ago. Yeah, that's that's really funny that you brought that up just because I like got one of those things that you like hang your bananas on in your kitchen and it's like also a fruit bowl. And like as soon as I started using that with other fruit, I'm like, why are my bananas like getting um ripe so much quicker? <laughs> like they just get brown. So that's funny that you brought that up because that happened like a day ago. So that's yeah. well now you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so other than that, um, there's there's obvious things, you know, all the pharmaceuticals, obviously, um, which are necessary, like the drugs we have, um, but not only making the drugs, how do we know how to make the drugs? Because we study the chemistry going on in people's bodies. So between, you know, biologists and chemists, we figure out how drugs can affect, you know, things going on with us. Um, our cell phone batteries, laptop batteries, all chemistry, obviously. Yeah, And I could go on depending on how much you want to talk about or if you have something specific you want to ask about. Yeah, I guess, well, touching on like sort of with the um, like medications and things like that, I thought it's really interesting. I just took a BMS 300, which is like a physiology class. And I thought it was really interesting how um, sort of like a common theme throughout learning about like physiology is how the human body is basically just powered by chemical gradients. And like everything is operating under like chemical gradients. And I just thought that's a really interesting application too, because we think of chemistry, we think of things that are outside of us and like people manipulating chemicals in a lab, but it's really like crazy how much like we are, we're like batteries almost like living batteries. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Um, not only us, but all plants, animals, like, you know, this, there's chemistry constantly going on in the soil around us. So, 
Um, and this is why the Gen Chem classes are so huge, is because almost every major needs some background in chemistry um, to have some baseline to, to move forward in their field. Yeah, and it's definitely like foundational for everything, including just like if you want to live like your life, like a normal daily life, like it's cool to know things about the world that's like going on around you. Um, I think that gives people like a better connection to like what they're doing in their everyday lives and just understanding things like the more you can understand something like what you're eating or what you're doing physically, like all sorts of things, like the better off you'll be. So. Yeah, you, you said that so perfectly. And um, right now, as more than ever, it, it's extremely important. And even going back to, to the way that myself and other professors in the chemistry department CSU are approaching our classes, um, I'm, I'm sure you've kind of noticed there's a bit of an assault on the science science in this country right now, and it's very dangerous, right? So as a, as a science educator, um, the other faculty members and I have been talking about this over the last five years, and we have a responsibility, even if we can't reach obviously everyone in the country, how can we tailor our curriculum um, so that at least if you are a CSU student that took a chemistry class, you leave knowing um, a little bit more. And when people, so, so just to give you an example, we recently had an unprecedented crazy winter storm in Texas, right? Freezing temperatures. Now, there's major news stations that had people, non-scientists, they, oh, this just shows how global warming isn't really happening because it had this winter storm. Now, that's a basic fallacy. If you really knew what climate change was, it means that the overall climate or, or temperature goes up, but then that results in these extreme weather patterns, right? So if we can get, you know, there's a thousand students every semester going through a Gen Chem class we can at least get every one of those people to know that definition. Then when they hear like misinformation like that, they're not, they're not, uh, you know, swayed by it. And it, it's just become important. So um, almost if you were to take any of the Gen Chem classes now, I know you've already gone through those, um, we've added to every single one some section on whether it's climate change in the ocean's atmosphere or something. And it goes right into what we learn anyway, right? It's just an extra, like this is an application. So um, that kind of overlaps with like our approach to teaching and an everyday an everyday thing. Like you said, you don't want to ignore ignore science. I'm not saying everybody has to be an expert, but just having a basic understanding um, is becoming really important with so much misinformation out there. Yeah, and like going that extra step too. Like it's important for people to have like education in like the STEM classes and then maybe apply some of their skills in terms of like critical thinking that they might learn in those STEM classes, but other classes too. Um, because then like once you have like the foundational understanding of, you know, you, you understand basic chemistry and basic biology and basic math, you can apply those and use them to critically think about other things. And it definitely takes a little more work. So I think that's why like a lot of people will just subscribe to misinformation. They don't they don't have the energy or the accessibility to go that extra step. But I think as long as there's more and more people out there that do, eventually um, the tide will kind of shift. At least that's what I hope. But I agree. And, and critical thinking, th that is key. Like what you just said is perfect because if, if nothing else, uh, why should you take a chemistry class? Even if you leave not remembering the details of atoms and, and stuff like that, 
you learn how you learn how to do critical thinking and that will affect everything you do in fact um i learned when i first started teaching so like about 10 years ago that the the a lot of the financial firms on wall street so the, the big big guys you know yeah a lot of the people they hire as their financial analysts do not have finance degrees they have phds in chemistry and physics because they found that they are better at critical thinking and solving problems than people who um, majored in finance nothing against finance but this is just an example of how take you know learn how to think critically and you can apply that to so many things yeah that's a really interesting point i never would have thought about that um and something else that i think about in terms of i really realized this when taking chemistry but so i'm a psychology major so i really haven't had to do much math like i haven't had to do any like calculus classes or anything like that but when i was taking chemistry and also when i've taken like other like biology things like that where i'm doing more mathematics there's sort of like this mental puzzle that's going on like when you're doing that that especially in chemistry like balancing equations really does feel like you're you're doing a puzzle like you're solving something testing out a bunch of different things to balance the numbers but part of me wishes that i could take more calculus or like classes like that just because it's got to be like good for your brain like there's no way for me to word that better but i really do think like that's a good exercise for your brain to be like going through and thinking about things that are really abstract um and numbers are a great way to like kind of a great medium for that yeah i would agree i mean that's why a lot of people do like the sudoku puzzles and stuff like that and 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 it's fun yeah yeah and it's fun for most people <laughs> yeah yeah um, so now I was thinking if we could talk a little bit about your graduate school research on microfluidic devices. Um, that's something like I've never heard of. I did a little like Googling about that. So I think it's pretty interesting, but I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, I had mentioned earlier that I wasn't, um, I wasn't always super excited about doing research. Um, this project was was definitely the highlight of, of my grad school. It got really fun for me. This is the one thing that I really love doing. So microfluidic devices, I said, if you looked it up, it probably, it's become pretty broad. So you probably got kind of an overload of information. So what it, what the field is, just to give a, a, an introductory definition, it's um, just the science of studying systems that process tiny volumes, right? So that would be 10 to hundreds of microliters. And a microliter is 10 to the negative six of a meter. So really, really small volumes. Okay, why, why would anybody care about this? Why are we working on microfluidic devices? So again, like these little handheld things that can process these little volumes, right? Um, these are used in medical analysis, environmental and food safety. I'll give some examples too. Um, and just microchemistry in general. The reason this field is important and, and getting so exciting and, and building and building, um, the cost is very low. So conventional instrumentation that does the same kind of things these do, like you know, detect small amounts of chemicals, maybe you're doing like um, environmental analysis. I used to also do aerosol analysis. So I'd build these little microchips, you'd sample um, air for like a couple hours and then right on the chip, right, right on site, you just add, you know, your liquid to it. It goes to a detector and tells you there is this much nitrous, you know, um, 
some kind of nitrogen, nitrogen oxide compound in the air or whatever, right? So the conventional uh, instruments that would do that, first of all, they're huge, right? They take up a whole lab bench. Um, so you're getting a sample, then you're bringing it back to a lab. Um, the cost is astronomical. We're talking between, I don't know, 50 to hundreds of thousands of dollars for just one of these instruments, okay? I could whip out, you know, 10 of these little microfluidic devices, bring them all out to the field, and, you know, maybe it took me a day to make them. Um, they're kind of even disposable. That's how low cost they are, right? Um, and that's so portability is also huge. And then the analysis times are really short because it's such a small thing and this little liquid is just, you know, little bits of liquid are moving through the device within, I don't know, maybe a minute, maybe five minutes at, at most, um, you have an answer. Whereas these conventional instruments, um, which don't get me wrong, they're still important and we use them all the time, you're looking at hours. I, or I used to run samples um, and I'd leave for eight hours and have to come back um, to get the results, right? So just huge. Um, I am, because this field is so large, I'm gonna focus on what I ended my research doing was called paper microfluidic devices. And these were really exciting. Um, if, if we had, I have some visuals here if we weren't just doing audio, but it's really just using regular paper. Uh, we use a wax printer that like prints wax right on the, the page. And the reason that works, imagine if you like poured water um, on a piece of paper and there was some wax that had spilled from a candle, right? The water isn't gonna go into the wax because yeah. they don't mesh, right? So the wax like forms the channels. Okay, so let's say if you, you wanna make a circle in wax, the water's gonna stay, or the liquid's gonna stay in the middle of that circle. Yeah. So that's, I, I hope that's painting the picture to try to understand. So, so simple, costs nothing. Um, one of the things we initially were planning on doing with these, you can do, um, they already have these for like glucose testing, right, for people with diabetes. Um, but if you're in the, for medical analysis, you could send hundreds, thousands of these things that like, I think I priced out, it was 0 0.03 cents per device um, using the wax printer we were using at the time. It might, have been, it might even be better by now. You could send these to, to a country that has no medical facilities, right? Like a very impoverished country. Um, as long as they have a cell phone, which believe it or not, pretty much everywhere does, even in the middle of you know, Africa or something. Yeah. They can do quick analyses on, on their blood or whatever, take a picture, and then the picture gets sent to whatever lab. And based on the colors, you can correlate that to amounts, right? So um, I guess to get a little more specific, you have these reagents, which, which is a word for, for chemicals, okay, that are dried into the paper, right, in these little wells. So then you, you put your sample on there, and, and people have probably seen these before with like glucose monitors or something. They'll light up different colors if they're present, right? And the darker the color, the higher concentration of the thing that you're trying to study. Okay, wow. hopefully this is making sense. It's hard with yeah. the visuals. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's crazy. So it, it was really cool. And what, um, when I was doing this, um, I think my publication, I think is the first one on that actually showed a real application of this. So I was at the forefront of, I mean, even in the beginning, it was kind of like how, what kind of paper do you use? Like we learned real quick that regular printer paper doesn't work because there's like a waxy coating on it. So you need 
you know, like construction paper is better. Um, which way do you orient the channels? Because we learned that paper has more fibers going up and down than it does across. So you'd have different flow rates. So that means we would just make them all go diagonally. So everything, so little simple things like that, right? Then um, I'll just speak about um, what my project turned into was I made these, these little devices, again, very simple, that, were, that are to be used for um, in occupational settings. Okay, so the best example would be a welder. You're, you're a welder, you're working all day, um, welding metals, right? Well, those metals are obviously going into the air. Okay, so how much are, you, are they breathing all day? Are you breathing particulate iron, particulate copper? Um, these, that can cause um, terrible health problems, right? Having, having those particulate metals in your lungs. Um, so what we came up with, and this was, um, I should mention, this is in Charles Henry's lab at CSU um, in collaboration with uh, John Vulcans, who's, who's a professor in the occupational health department, or at least was at the time, I think he's moved to a different department. Um, he, his end kind of made these devices where we would put my paper devices inside and what his thing did was suck the air in. So a worker would wear it, like clip it to their shirt. It's pretty small. Work for maybe eight hours. Actually, it would work even, even two hours would be, get you enough to be able to tell what they're breathing. Okay, at the end, I could take their, their little paper device and, and this could fit within the palm of my hand, like very small, add my, my reagents. And from that, um, use like Photoshop or something to measure the brightness of the color. And that would say how many micrograms, we're talking tiny amounts, that's how sensitive these were. How many micrograms of different metals were they probably breathing? Wow. So that's, that's what it all, and it, and it's, um, that's yeah, crazy. I, when we first started this, I was like, I, I, yeah, I was, I remember thinking like, then it's going to be a miracle if this really works. It just seems way too simple with just this little piece of paper. Um, but we, I got it to work and it was really exciting. Um, I've seen now Charles Henry's group, they took what I did and they've built on it. They now print, um, they use like carbon ink um, because carbon can be used as an electrode, can um, conduct um, electricity or, or conduct a sing signal or whatever. Um, so they can print onto that so they can actually get electrochemical readings, meaning things that, um, you know, things, things that can conduct electricity, they can also do detection on those. So it's, it's just widening the applications. You can use these everywhere. Um, another example out of Charles Henry's lab that uh, I sort of helped the beginning with but didn't do too much on was you could have tests for like salmonella or E. coli um, or listeria. Like, right, I don't know if you would have it in your home or maybe grocery stores have it. You just take, you know, swab your chicken, put it on the little device, and you make sure that it's safe. So I don't know, maybe that would be useful in restaurants. Like, the, the what's cool about this, I think anybody listening, whether you have science background or not, you could sit around uh, some friends and come up with ways this could be used. I think that the possibilities are endless. Just start brainstorming. What else could you do with this if you could just test something on site? Yeah, something I was thinking about while you're explaining that is like going to the welder's example of like breathing in particulates. Um, my roommates and I recently found out we had like a significant radon issue in our basement. 
Um, and we had like one of those devices that measures it over the course of a few days. Um, so I was just wondering if like, would it be like even, would it be reasonable to like use one of those devices like to detect something like that? Or is radon not really a particulate? It's more of just a gas, right? That is a great, that's a great idea. And using this example, this kind of might better explain how these things work. Even though it's a gas, I still think it could. Um, you would just have, so here's how you can test something. So what, I, what you would need to figure out is what is a reagent, a chemical, that the moment it comes in contact with radon would either change a color, so that would be a colometric measurement, or is maybe electrochemical active. I don't know that that's as likely for radon. As long as you have something that um, could give a signal like a color change, um, you could do this. You just keep, you would just maybe keep the device there, let it collect, and then um, based on some signal, like I said, possibly color, that would show you how much you, how much you have there. Um, you know, obviously we'd have to look more into it, but I think that's a great example. Just because it's in the gas phase doesn't mean it won't react with things on a, on a device. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess something else I was thinking about too is, um, are these like now like being, I mean, I don't want to say like, are they products that are sold, but like, are people like kind of jumping into this technology and trying to apply it to a bunch of fields or is it something that's still sort of limited to academia? It is starting to get out there. Um, and I'm trying to think of, I don't want to give away any proprietary information um, on, for Chuck's, Chuck's lab. Um, well, you know what, if you, um, if you looked up Charles Henry's research or, or any of the stuff with COVID testing going on at CSU, that is Charles Henry's lab. So I don't know exactly what they did, but they are using these microfluidic devices. It might even be the paper ones to do that uh, saliva testing at CSU, if you've heard about that. Oh yeah. That's and that's these devices. Yeah. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw it. I was like, oh, I, ha I had a little bit to do with that in the beginning. So yeah. Yeah, that's, that's happening. Um, and I don't, I, I don't, I just, I'm not quite sure what else, but I do know um, his lab has made deals with other companies. Um, like it's, it's more than academia to answer your question. He yeah. is working with other companies that like love this technology and it is going places for sure. Yeah. That's so interesting that it's like a technology that started with something like paper but it's also cool that it's connected to like, you know, taking pictures then with a phone and transporting that like, yeah. Yeah, we're pretty like limitless now yeah, in terms of accessible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like everyone has phones and the internet now and things like that. Like the sky is the limit now, so. Absolutely. Imagine in the future you could have um, whether it's made out of, so the ones that aren't paper devices um, are made out of like a kind of a rubbery plasticky material, um, which is also very cheap. So maybe everyone would have these in their homes and you could do like a blood test every month or I, I don't know, whatever, depending on what your situation is to test different things in your blood levels. If again, diabetes is, that's already really being done, but maybe you need to check um, I don't know, levels of other things. I'm not really a bio person, but the the medical field, I think this is really where it's going to be huge, in addition to everything else I've, I've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely like, I think too, as like, 
I mean, now, like if you go into the doctor's office, like a lot of times they want to do just like a routine, like blood work sample where they're picking up everything that's in your diet and things like that. So I could totally see how devices like that would be used for that, that situation. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having this discussion with me. That was super interesting. Um, is there anything that you wanted um, to share with people that are listening or, I mean, not to put you on the spot or anything, but anything at all? Um, no, I just, I do hope that this um, conversation maybe got people interested um, in chemistry a bit. And um, another thing I would just, especially people st starting their education, starting college um just to keep an open mind on the fields you know when you especially if you're 18 19 going into school don't 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 have tunnel vision of i know this is what i want to do um and if you're real passionate about something that's great but having an open idea like well maybe this would be interesting maybe this would be interesting so you're not limiting yourself um in, in the field that you go in and just knowing that even though it's intimidating like everybody is capable of learning chemistry, at, le at least through, you know, some of the basics. Yeah, I think that's a great message. I think a lot of people will um, take that message and let it resonate. So thanks for that. Yep, I was this is a lot of fun. I was happy to be a part of this. Sweet.